Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all kings. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore a wrath. They shall never enter my rest. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. How would you answer the question, what's the biggest problem in the world today? What's the biggest problem in the world today? How would you answer the question, what's the biggest problem in your life? I think one way you could answer it is... And the way the Bible, I think, tries to address those two questions is it has the same answer. What's the biggest problem in the world? What's the biggest problem in your life? And that is misplaced worship. If you look with me at Romans chapter 1, you'll see in verse 23, Paul tells us that the biggest problem in the world is a, a, monstrous, a monstrous exchange that has taken place in the in the course of every human heart he says this they've exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles so the glory the the immeasurable weight of god the the reality of god the worship of the immortal god was exchanged for an image that was a mirage every time you You set something up to say, if I could finally get this object, if I could finally reach this goal, if I could have this relationship, uh, that's what's really I need to I need to soak all of my energy and time and resources into it. And even when you get it, if you get it, you notice it just doesn't last. It's like a mirage. You get there and you feel like you're filling up. But after a while, it, it doesn't satisfy. So you have to have another goal out in front of you. And Paul is telling us that every person has exchanged the one thing that can be satisfying for the for something that's a, a mirage. The the all satisfying, life giving, never ending, immeasurable weight of God was exchanged for the disappointing, life sapping, never arriving hollow, hollowness of the things of the world. And then he notice in verse 24, he talks about. That sin and how it cascades like like a domino effect into every other area of your life. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature the creature rather than the creator it cascades once you take your focus off the lord this sin begins to cascade into the to the lust of your heart it it, it affects or infects your heart it affects your your body you dishonor your body by the way you live and then you mentally exchange truth for lies. So it's, it's having this domino effect in your heart. It's having it in your body and it's having it in your mind. And someone once asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? I mean, Jesus, if I have just energy to do one thing, can you just narrow it down to just doing one thing? What's that one thing? If I could just get that right, what would you tell me? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Your strength, your body, and your mind. See, Jesus understood that that the object of your worship determined the direction of the rest of your being. Whatever you put out front, whatever you're giving yourself to, it's going to drive the course of the rest of your life. It's why in the the first of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other God before me. When you get the first one right, when God's at the center, the rest of the commandments naturally fall in line. But if if you ever find yourself lying or lusting or coveting or being jealous or stealing, then what you know is that God, God is no longer the object of your worship. Something has replaced that. Think about why you would tell a lie. Why, what motivates you to tell a lie? You know it's a wrong thing to do. You don't have to be a particularly moral person to understand this. But even just a little white lie, why, why, what's the motive? What's behind telling a lie? And probably something like, I don't want to look bad. Or I don't want to lose something. I don't want to lose this relationship. I don't want to lose this job. I don't want to lose my status. I don't want to lose my GPA. Whatever the thing is, is that I don't want to look bad or I don't want to lose something. But whatever that is, whatever the motive is, you can tell that the object of your worship has been exchanged. At the moment of the lie, something becomes more important than God. Your job becomes more important. Your status becomes more important. You become more important. And there's an exchange that takes place. And so you find yourself lying because something is more important than God. Bible scholar Palmer Robertson makes this comment about worship. The world today has lost its sense of God's greatness and glory. And the consequences have been massive. Once the reality and worship of God is lost, stability evaporates Moral standards shift when God does not determine the difference between right and wrong. So we, we live in these unstable, turbulent, sort of shifting times. And we're really no different than any other particular time in human history. And, and that's why worship is so important. It begins to take you out of the world that is so shifting and, and, and so hollow and begins to bring you back into the reality of God. And so we need to talk about worship and uh, why it's so important in our own life and in the life of the church. And so much could be said. All these topics that we've talked about could be a series in and of themselves. And so I thought it would be easier to narrow down our scope of talking about the topic of worship to just one passage. And so I chose Psalm 95. And I just want to make four observations about the psalm that talks about 
worship. Notice the first observation about worship you can see in verse 1 and verse 6. It's, oh, come. The first thing about worship, it starts as an invitation. Come. Come and worship. Come. It's an open invitation. All doors open. Come and worship the, the real king. Come and enter in and engage in worship of the one true God. Maybe, maybe it's a call to people. Maybe in the mind of the psalmist it was a call to people who, who may feel distant from God. And so he's saying, I know you feel like you're at a distance, but come back. You're not too far away to hear the call to come back to worship. Maybe the psalmist had uh, somebody in mind who was worshiping other gods. And so that person had invested all of their time, all of their energy into something material, some relationship. And he's seeing that. He's saying, oh, that's just not going to satisfy. So come, come, come to the real thing. Or maybe he had somebody in mind that would be more like today. It's a call to participation. You come. Come and worship. Come and worship. Don't come and sit and be entertained. I asked kind of a trick question in the inquirers weekend. So if you're on that list, you'll now you'll be able to answer the question in a couple of weeks. Now, I know that answer and you'll sound real smart. So just pay attention. But I'll ask this question. And I'll say, well, let's say we've gathered for worship on Sunday morning at 1030. And let's just say in this event, there's a there's a performer and there's an audience. When we gather for worship, who's the performer Who's the audience? And occasionally there's an eager responder who feels like they know the answer. And sometimes they'll say, well, the performer, that's you. That's the worship team. And the audience, that's me. That's the congregation. And so I just let that sit. And then I kind of say a little bit more slowly. Okay, let's think. Let's think again. We're we're all gathering for worship. Who's the performer? Who's the audience? And then usually people understand that if we're coming to worship, if it's a worship service, then we're all performers. And God alone is the audience. So we're coming. We're coming as performers in worship. It's a call to come and be a participant, not come and to be an audience. And and if you come on a Sunday morning and you think of yourself as an audience person rather than a performer, then you're going to come with a totally different mental makeup, a, a different expectation. If you come on a Sunday morning as a performer, then you come prepared and on time. You're you're going to give a performance. You're going to be ready for the performance. The performance. But if you come as an audience, then you know being on time and being prepared. Yeah, that doesn't matter so much because I'm just the audience. I'm sitting back and I'm waiting for the performance to take place. If if you come as a performer, then you come to to primarily give. I'm coming to give. I'm, I'm coming to perform. I'm coming to worship. That's what I'm giving. If you come as an audience, you come primarily to receive. It's passive. I'm sitting back. I'm just absorbing things. If you, if you come as an audience, you usually feel the need to critique the performance. If you understand that God is the audience, you realize he's come to critique you. 
See, it's a big difference in how you perceive what's happening when, when it's saying, hey, come, you, you all come, come who are far away, come who are serving other gods, come who, who are stuck in a culture of just entertainment. No, come and let's all worship together the one true God. So one observation is worship begins with a call to come. It's an invitation. Second observation about worship itself. One definition might be this. Worship is using your entire being, your heart, your body, your mind, to ascribe ultimate value to an object. It's, it's using all of who you are, all your heart, all your mind, all your body to say, this is what's most valuable. That's worship. Being fully engaged. And you see this full engagement in the psalm. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, come and sing. Or, or he says, make a joyful noise. And I don't really like that particular translation. I don't think that gets at what the psalmist is really getting to when he says that. Make a joyful noise. When I, when I hear make a joyful no- noise, just somebody from the cast of glee comes to mind. And that's, I don't think that's what he has in mind, this teenager from glee standing up there and Tapping a guitar and oh, I'm making a joyful noise because the context, the, the context of this word used in other places is it has to do with shouting. And maybe in some of your translations, it says shout. It's the word that you remember when Joshua entered the promised land and he's going around the, the, the city of Jericho. Remember, he's going around every day and he does it for seven days. And on the seventh day, they cir- all the people are circling the city. Imagine everybody's circling this walled city. And Joshua says, OK, at a particular point, we're going to blow the trumpets. And when the tr- when you hear the trumpets, what are the, spe- the people supposed to do? Make a joyful noise. See, I don't think that's what he means. I think he means shout because the Lord is going to do something terrific. And when you see it, you're just going to want to shout. You're going to want to be fully engaged in what's happening. And I think that's the idea. And maybe a, a better sort of Hollywood image at this particular point to sort of get glee out of your head is uh, Mel Gibson in Braveheart. You remember him? The, the Scottish warrior, William Wallace, he, he's he's on his horse and he's going back and forth in front of his troops. And he's the one who's going to lead this big charge at the end of the movie. And he says, they may take our lives. And everybody got Every man knows this. What does he say? But they will never take our freedom. And then did all the men who sort of look like barbarians, did they make a joyful noise? No, they shouted out. They realized they were involved. They were fully engaged. And, and they were, it was like saying, I'm all in. And that's one of the objects of worship. That's one of the ways you worship. You say, I'm all in. From your heart, all of my emotions. Now I realize that like when Sam Kennedy stands up and he leads worship, he's all in. And not all of us are going to be able to do that. What I can't do that. <laughs> but 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 however it is, you express your all inness. I don't even thought that's a word. That worship requires you, you being all in. Oh, 
praise him. Hallelujah. We, we give you an opportunity to, to shout out a truth to say, you know, I, I haven't been all in on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but I need to be reminded of this truth. And when I'm reminded of this truth, I want to say again, yes, I'm, I'm all in for this. I'm worshiping the Lord. That's one of the areas of worship. It, it engages your heart. Secondly, it engages your body. Verse 6, you bow down, you, you kneel before the Lord. It's not just a, an emotional thing. And also it's a physical thing. And, and real worship begins to tame the physical passions. Sleep, sex, comfort, caffeine, all those things bow down. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body and I make it my slave. I'm making all these physical desires, all these physical demands that rise up every single day with me and say, Paul, satisfy this physical need. And I'm not saying it's not a need. I'm just saying it has to bow down to something greater. It can't drive me. This physical need can't be the thing that uh, is my object of worship. It has to be God. So I'm taming all of those things and I'm having my body kneel down and say, as much as I might be hungry or tired, those things aren't going to drive me. What's going to drive me is the truth about God and who he is. And then it engages your mind. Look at this key word in Psalm 95, verse 3 and verse 7. It's the word for. It, Let us make a joyful noise. Let's sing a song of praise. That's the end of verse 2. For, or because, because I have this in mind, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And he goes on to describe him. And then he says in verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. And the reason for, I've got this in my mind. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. So there's this mental understanding that the psalmist has that says, I understand some truth about God, so I'm going to be able to shout. I'm going to be able to kneel down. It's engaging my mental faculties. And a significant part of worship is being mentally reminded and refined by the Eternal truths of who God is. You can't just engage by shouting and raising your hands. You can't just engage by just being mentally engaged. You can't just engage by kneeling down somewhere. It's all three of these things saying, I'm using all of my faculties to say this thing, this person, this God is the one true God. And can't you just hear the apostle Paul here on this point of being mentally engaged. He's dying. And he's giving some instructions back to the person that's going to sort of take his place in Ephesus. This young preacher named Timothy. And he says this to Timothy. Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage. That the time will come, Timothy... When men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. Instead, they'll be listening to myths. And then finally, he says, Timothy, be sober minded. 
But Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, there's going to be a day when people have a love affair with themselves rather than the truth. That they will be the object of their own worship. They're going to gather people around them that will say, tell us about ourselves. I want to, I want to know more about who I am. I'm, I'm the most important person. And then he says, Timothy, you be sober-minded. In other words, you don't get intoxicated with yourself when you get up behind the pulpit. The most important thing for you to do is to preach the word, to teach the truth. Don't entertain, don't tell stories, don't wander off the script. No, you teach the word because the power of the spoken word is the only thing that's going to get people out of the orbit around themselves and into the orbit around Christ. Preach the word. Help them understand from their minds how important I am. And that having me at the center of life helps orbit all the other passions that they'll entertain in their life. Bring these things to their mind, Timothy. And then notice the things that the psalmist brings to mind. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God. He's the king above all kings. See, there, there is no other king. There is no president. There's no boss, parent, sp- pastor, or spouse, or friend stable enough to build your life on. He's our maker. God is the potter and you and I are the clay. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He didn't make a mistake. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He has already numbered your days. He's the maker. And everyone here will stand before him one day and give an account of how they've lived their lives. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. Verse 7. God has not forgotten you. He's our shepherd. We shall not be in want. He restores our souls. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with us. We don't have any reason to be fearful. fearful. See, these things are easily forgotten as you leave the sanctuary of worship. It's easy to assign the role of king to someone else in your life. It's easy to say, I just can't be happy unless they... I'm just assigning you sovereignty over me and my emotions. It's, it's easy to, to assign that role to someone else. It's easy to think that you're self-made and you determine your own destiny. Hey, I've worked hard. I've gotten where I have because I've worked hard. I've put in a hard day's work. I've put in a hard year's work. I've put in a hard year's ten, work, ten years of work. And I'm, I'm self-made, and now I'm at a point that I get to determine my own destination. That's not true. So it's easy to assign that and say, no, actually, I'm, I'm being made by a maker. And I have to give an account for how I live my life. It's easy like a sheep to go astray. And when you go astray, what happens in your own mind is you begin to think, God has forgotten about me. He doesn't care any longer about me. And see, worship, the psalmist is saying, none of those things are true. I understand how easy it is to think them, especially when you get out on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. But come back, come back and remember what's true. Come back and center yourself on the real God. Third observation, worship is designed to be a group project. Oh, come let us worship, not oh, come let me worship. You, you should come worship. You should have some private worship. But worship primarily is designed to be a, a corporate event. 
All the all the pronouns in the in the uh, psalm are all plural. Us are we 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 worship together. The the worship is deeper. It's richer being together. Yeah, I think you could feel that just today in the, in the time of singing. It was a whole lot better that all of us were here than just you. Certainly, just me. You you know this sense. It it it, it helps you. And you help other people really appreciate what's happening when you're together. This doesn't just happen in a worship service. It could happen in a lot of different places. But you know the energy that can be created and the focus that can be created that can happen in a group that can't happen all by yourself. You might get easily distracted. You might not appreciate something as much as you should. I remember being in New York City last summer with my daughter Morgan. And we went to a Broadway play. And at the sort of right before the intermission, this great song this person was singing was just this powerful voice. And you were riveted on the story. You're riveted on the, the excellence of the performance. And, and when she finished this song, this crowd from all over probably the world sitting in this large venue, what did they do? Just spontaneously just erupted with applause to say, that's awesome. That is so great. I'm so glad we corporately could focus on this one thing. And we are so thankful you have that kind of talent. Yes. But, you know, if Morgan and I had been sitting at our home on our couch watching that on television. What kind of response might we have? That was kind of cool. I mean, hey, this is good. I need to go to the bathroom. So can we press pause and I'll be... You know, so, so when, when you're by yourself, you just, you're so easily distracted. And, and when you corporately are worshiping together, you're, you're, you're together, we're saying, He is awesome. And I've forgotten that. And I need a bunch of people to sing it around me so I can say, Yes, I'm, yes, I'm all in. I've come, I've come to worship. And, and you need me and I need you in order to make that happen in a way that God has designed specifically when we look at this particular song. Worship is primarily designed to be corporate. Final observation. Real worship is meant to give rest. Psalmist remembers this odd event in verses 8 through 11 that happened, and you can read about it in Exodus 17. He describes a very significant event, and it's uh, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've been saved miraculously. They've been, been brought across the Red Sea. They're now in the desert. God's leading them. He's done all these incredible things. And as they travel through the desert, as you might imagine, one of the most important things is water. And so they think they see an oasis and they come to the oasis, but instead of finding water, they found rocks. I wonder if you felt that way. You're wandering around, you're looking for something, you think it's, oh, this is it, and you arrive and it's rocks. And it's really a moment for them to say, can, can we trust God even though we found rocks? I mean, he's done so many things, even though we found rocks here, we know he could make water come from a rock if he wanted to. But they they didn't trust God. Instead of they tested God, they got angry with God. They quarreled with God. They said, you know, I'm not getting what I want when I want it. 
And when they had that attitude, they began to question whether God even really existed. And if he did, does he care about me? And then they began to pick up some of those rocks and go towards Moses and say, hey, he's really the problem. So let's get him. So God instructs Moses. He sees this event. He says, Moses, let's do this. You take the staff. You take the staff that is the staff of judgment, the one you you use sort of against the Egyptians. Remember the one that you you dipped into the Nile River and it turned it to to, uh, the color of blood and everything in it died. Take that staff and walk before the people. And you stand in the middle. The people will be on one side and I'll be on this rock over here. And when you stand up, I want you to stand up and it's be like you're the mediator, the people on one side and God on the other side. And you've got this rod of judgment in your hand. Now, if you're the people, what are you thinking at this point? Uh Oh, man, we messed up. I mean, he's got that rod and we've been quarreling and we've almost stoned him. But God's on one side and we're on the other. We're not feeling good right now about our chances. And he says, I want, you to, I want you to lift up the staff and I want you to strike. And what would be your anticipation? Take the staff of judgment and strike one of these two parties. Moses, lift up the staff and strike the stone. The stone I'm standing on. I'll take the judgment. And what pours out of the stone? Life-giving water. When you read the story, you you say, what? These people deserve to be struck down by God. They don't deserve, they deserve judgment, not grace. I mean, the kind of people who uh, these people are, they've been saved. They've seen all these miraculous things, and yet they're still not getting what they want. So they're quarreling, they're testing God. These are the kinds of people who, who deserve judgment. And what kind of God would come to a people like that and say, instead of giving you judgment, I'm going to give you grace. What kind of God does that? This kind of God, this kind of God. To people who deserve judgment, he says, hey, strike me instead. And when you strike me, you're not just going to get mercy. You're going to get grace, water, life giving water will flow from the cross and cover your sin. So when you come to worship, you're worshiping the, the true king, the one who bowed down and took your sins that you deserved and gave you grace. So when you come to worship Jesus, you're laying down all your burdens. All the sin that's so burdensome that you haven't forgot or you can't forget or you can't defeat. You come and say, Jesus, I know I can find rest. Those things don't have to define me. You can define me differently. Or you can come and get rid of the burden of self-righteousness. Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm doing most better than most people. So you come in and you say, I've got to get this thing from God. And God say, no, that's not how we worship here. You got to lay down your sin and you got to lay down your self-righteousness. And when you lay those things down in worship, what you find is 
rest. You no longer have to be a performer to get God's attention. You no longer have to be burdened by your own sin because he is big enough to hold it all. And when you begin to understand that, then you really begin to worship. Worship is designed to be corporate. It's designed to bring rest. It's designed to engage your heart, your body, and your mind. That's what we try to do here on Sunday mornings. Let's pray together. Lord, we sang this song earlier, uh, We Have Found Our Hope. And one of the lines is, We Found Our Rest. And I'm praying for your people here who don't sense or feel that kind of rest. Because they're still wrestling with this sin that seems to always cloud the horizon. They can never move away from it. It's like a chain that even though it lets them go some distance, it always snaps and stops them at some point. That they would be able to let go of that and let you hold on to that alone and pay for it. And for those who might come who say, I've had a pretty good week. I deserve God's attention. I'm entitled to things. What a terrible sin. May we come and lay that down and say, no, I'm not worthy of God's attention. But yet he flows it out in mercy towards us. Help us to be a church that worships well. That encourages each other and encourages those who come in to know the one true God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.